0: Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter awards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I am Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we explore the bizarre world of slime moulds with Chris Reed. But first up, here's the news. Robots with a driver's licence? California's laws say that robot-driven cars need to have a licensed driver at all times. ABC 7 News reports that this prevents Steve Marne, a blind man in San Francisco, from having a Google autonomous car drive him around. Three years ago he was given a ride by a Google robot car, but he can't do it regularly because of the laws and regulations in the way. The US federal government has sent Google a letter specifying that federal laws don't require the driver to be human. If California were to follow suit, then Mann could be driven wherever he wanted by a robot car. Of course, that would mean the robot had to have a license. The laws also require cars to have mirrors, which not only aren't of use to a robot, but don't help a visually impaired passenger. Google would like their next model robot cars to be built without steering wheels and pedals. When the law allows. Direct-to-brain bionic vision. The Monash Vision Group has developed a direct-to-brain bionic eye for people with vision impairment caused by glaucoma, macular degeneration, and traumatic injuries. Unlike retinal implants, this generis brain-connecting device could help people who have damage to the optic nerve or anterior visual pathway. At present, the team are proving the system is safe and functional before recruiting patients for a proof-of-concept trial at Prince Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, for the second half of 2016. The Monash system has competition from a Bionic Eye developed by Bionic Vision Australia. The Bionic Vision Australia Bionic Eye has a chip inside your eye, stimulating the retina, which relies on your optic nerve to transmit the picture from a camera on your glasses to your brain. If you can't use the Bionic Vision Australia Bionic Eye because your optic nerve is damaged, you now have hope of benefiting from the Monash Vision Bionic Eye because the Monash Eye bypasses the optic nerve to talk directly with your brain. The technology developed at Monash University uses a pair of glasses with built-in cameras containing visual processor chips and wireless transmitters. The glasses send the image to nine fingernail-sized tiles of chips implanted under the wearer's skull. The chips stimulate the visual cortex of their brain with arrays of penetrating microelectrodes, This creates a visual pattern from combinations of up to 473 spots of light, which is expected to be enough for people to navigate and recognise people and objects. People using this system will have to learn to interpret the new signals as they're not encoded in the way the eye would send the information to your brain. Hopefully, the wireless receiver has strong encryption built in, any wireless receiver in the brain should have good security. You wouldn't want your brain hacked. You certainly wouldn't want your vision interfered with. People relying on wireless reception for their senses may also have to worry about strong signals from metal detectors and body scanners at airports. You can apply to be part of the Direct Bionic Eye to Brain trials by going to www.monash.edu.au slash eye slash trials PHP. Lithium for long life? Lithium salts in low doses have extended the life of fruit flies at the UCL Institute of Healthy Ageing. Lithium is a drug that's been used to moderate the mood swings of bipolar disorder but which is dangerous in larger doses. In fruit flies, the drug blocks the activity of an inflammation promoting protein known as glucogen synthase kinase 3 or GSK3 and activating a molecule called NRF2 which is important for defending cells against damage. The result is that the fruit flies lived on average 16% longer. Their bodies are shielded from stress and fat production is blocked for flies on a high-sugar diet. At higher doses of lithium, the flies died young. Ironically, low doses of lithium helped protect against the toxic effects of higher doses of lithium. Lithium has extended the lifespans of yeast, roundworms and now fruit flies. Hopefully, low-dose lithium will have the same benefits in humans. I expect they'll compare the mortality reports for people already taking the drug just as they did for people taking the diabetes-treating drug metformin. The paper was titled Lithium Promotes Longevity Through GSK3-NRF2-Dependent Hormesis and was published in the journal Cell Reports. And finally, I was interviewed by Maynard for the latest edition of The Skeptic Zone. The Skeptic Zone is a wonderful podcast about science and reason, hosted and produced by my friend Richard Saunders, who's spoken of sceptical matters on diffusion in the past. You can listen to his show at www.skepticzone.tv. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Rowan Brahm recently showed The Creeping Garden, a documentary about slime moulds. Before the film, Rowan had two biologists talk about slime moulds, Chris Reed and Eliza Middleton. I visited Chris in his laboratory at the Australian Technology Park in Redfern. Chris is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Sydney. I began by asking him, what
2: is a slime mould? A slime mould is what we call a protist. And protists are these creatures that don't really fit anywhere else in the tree of life. So basically they're single-celled organisms that also have some complex internal architecture. And some of these protists, like the slime moulds, are capable of some really complex behaviours, things that you would expect only animals with brains to be able to do. But these slime moulds don't have a brain. They don't even have a single neuron. They're basically a big bag of yellow goo that's oozing around the forest floor, engulfing its prey of yeast and bacteria.
0: So it's got behaviour
2: as if it had a brain. What sort of behaviour do you mean? So we can give the slime moulds some pretty complex cognitive tasks to solve. Things like solving a maze. So the slime mold is able to solve a labyrinth maze, find the shortest path. A maze similar to what you might find in your uh, daily newspaper. It's capable of solving what we call multi-objective foraging decisions. This is where the slime mold has to choose the best out of multiple food sources. It's able to do that, but it's able to do that in really complex scenarios where the slime mold has to judge each of these different options on multiple criteria. And these are things that we always thought you needed a brain to be able to do. How can it make these sort of decisions without a brain? Do we know? We're still trying to figure that out. We're mostly looking at how the slime mold is organized and how it can be considered a decision-making system. And the main way we think about that is we model the slime mold as a system of what's called coupled oscillators. So each part of the slime mold is actually pulsing. If you look at a slime mold down a microscope, you'll see that it's moving very slowly and uh, expanding and contracting. And it does that using exactly the same system that we use in our muscle tissue. Now each one of these little tiny parts of the slime mold is pulsing at a certain frequency. And that frequency is determined by two things. One is how attractive the local environment is. For instance, if there's food around, or if it's quite dark, things that the slime mold likes, then that little part of the slime mold will increase the frequency of its pulses. But because it's linked to the neighbouring part of the slime mould through the cell membrane, each pulsing part actually entrains its neighbour to pulse at its frequency. And that's a method that the slime mould can use to transfer information from one part of the organism to distant parts of the organism. And we're talking about a big cell. This is one single cellular creature, but it can grow up to several square metres in area. And it's able to transfer information throughout the whole organism and act as one unified whole through this coupled oscillator system of information transfer. And we think that's what the slime mold uses to coordinate its activity and actually to create behaviour that's more than the sum of its parts.
0: So that's sort of like a sense of touch that's feeling the nearby oscillations of other parts of the slime mold?
2: That's right, and then reacting to that oscillation and by repeating it in kind.
0: So does that mean the oscillations are like encoding information?
2: We think they are, yes. It's very similar to... If you were to map out this system of oscillations throughout a whole slime mold, it would be analogous to doing an MRI on a human brain.
0: So do you think the slime molds have evolved this type of intelligence because they're predators?
2: Possibly. We know that the slime molds are very ancient creatures. If we look at the latest models about the tree of life and where every current species fits in, the slime mold is back right about the fifth branch from the origin of life. So it's a very basal creature. But it means that these creatures which evolved at a time and really fit in at an area of the tree of life between single-cellular and multicellular creatures, they were able to use a similar system to this to solve complex problems in their environment.
0: In the laboratory, when you're examining the slime molds, obviously they don't have the natural environment to make decisions in, how do you watch them make decisions? What sort of decisions do you give them to make?
2: So we give them various decisions to make. We can't obviously watch them in real time, so we do a time-lapse technique on the slime mold. Generally, we set up these problems for the slime mold to solve, and then we take photos at intervals over a period of two to four days. So it takes us a little while. The kinds of problems we we look at include maze solving, but mostly are to do with giving the slime mould difficult problems, choosing between a whole range of options that differ in different attributes, and looking at how the slime mould can integrate all of that information to come up with the best solution.
0: So slime moulds can solve mazes, which is something most people probably think of with higher animals like rats or or mice. Is that something we can model, like with computationally or digitally in some way?
2: Definitely, and this is a, a huge area of interest. If we take the slime mold's way of organising itself in this coupled oscillator system, it's representative of a system that is what we call distributed. As opposed to a human system, which is a, sort of a top-down approach, the brain controls the rest of the body and tells everything other system what to do, the slime mould is more of a ground-up approach. So each part is independent. Each small part only has very local information and interacts only with a few neighbours around it. But the sum of all those interactions over the whole organism leads to what we call emergent behaviour in this collective system. It's exactly the same process that does work in a fish school that's evading a predator or a flock of starlings flying around trying to search for a spot to roost at night. So these systems that are what we call distributed systems have a lot of interest for computer modelers in designing algorithms that mimic the way they work because they're able to be very robust to changing conditions. So if we want to design a a very efficient computer algorithm but we want it also to be able to cope with fluctuating conditions such as what might happen in the natural world or even over things like the stock market, then these distributed algorithms can be very useful. And
0: there are other things that you'd expect animals with brains to be able to do. Like, imagine what's going to happen next or anticipate things. Is that something slime moulds can do?
2: Yes, it's been shown that they have a way of doing that. So there was a very interesting paper released in 2008 by a Japanese group which actually tested whether the slime mould could memorise and anticipate uh, events that happened periodically within its environment. And they actually found that it could do that. The actual biochemical or cellular mechanism by which the slime mould does this is still largely unknown, but it adds to the list of impressive things that the slime mold's capable of doing, and that needs further investigation in the future.
0: So this ability to make decisions and anticipate things, is it related to real-world problems outside of mazes?
2: Again, we're not too sure about this. It's hard to imagine a kind of very strictly periodic stimulus that the slime mold would naturally encounter. Likely it's just one extra ability that the slime mold is granted by this kind of powerful distributed system that governs its whole architecture. Uh, We don't really know this, but it certainly speaks to the sort of broad applicability of these kind of um, organisation.
0: And in the human world, isn't something like the design of a railway network exactly that sort of problem?
2: Yes, that's right. And again, the slime mold has been shown to be able to do something very similar to this. So a great paper which came out actually in in Science Magazine, showed that the slime mold could build a network that mimicked the Tokyo rail system. So by placing slime mold on an agar map of the Tokyo system, with each train station sort of spelled out with little oat flakes, which the slime mold likes to eat. By spreading a slime mold throughout this whole system, they could see that the slime mold actually found all of the oat flakes, which are the train stations, and then retracted to form uh, single length like links between each of these stations. And by mapping out the final slime mold network, it actually had efficiency that was very similar to, or in fact, sometimes greater than, the human designed train system. And that's another application where people could look at these distributed algorithms for ways of planning uh, human architectures like train networks or our electricity grids.
0: That sort of way of forming bushy networks and then cutting back to just what you need for the problem, it sounds very similar to what neural networks do in a brain.
2: Yes, it could be very similar. We're talking about kind of similar architectures for doing similar things. In the brain, each neuron is connected to many other neurons and they're all passing information to each other. And the greater number of connections between neurons and number of neurons we tend to think of as lead to greater intelligence. It could be similar with a slime mould. Certainly each part of the slime mould is connected to each other part and is passing information to each other. Uh, Whether larger slime moulds equate to a larger brain uh, is something that definitely could be tested in the future.
0: Are slime moulds the biggest single-celled organisms
2: that we know about? They're certainly one of the largest, uh, especially in terms of area covered. There are a few other instances that sort of contend for the record, the highly coveted record. A lot of people will say an ostrich egg could be a runner, and certainly in terms of mass it probably is. There are some algae which are connect all connect together and become one very large cell, uh, which is also in the running. But to me, the slime mould size, coupled with its ability to do all of these complex behaviours, really makes it a, a remarkable organism.
0: In your talk you mentioned something really odd. You talked about the sort of irrational decisions that humans have been shown to make, particularly in economic psychology, and that this can apply to slime moulds.
2: Yeah, using this economic definition of of rationality. Yes, it's really interesting to think of a slime mould as being either a rational or irrational thinker. But one of the papers uh, that was done by a researcher at Sydney Uni actually show that this is the case, the slime mold can actually act irrationally. So the way that they set this problem up is, consider that you have uh, one option, say a tin of baked beans that is small in size, but also small in price. And another option, which is a larger tin of baked beans, that's also greater in price. So both of these options are equally good in different variables, okay? And it's difficult to choose between the two. But say another option is offered to you that is small in size but costs more than the other small-sized option. Now immediately you should think, well that's a totally irrelevant option, we'll just ignore that and we'll go back to the first two. But it's actually been shown that introducing that third variable, which should be discarded, does actually mess with the human brain. It actually causes people to favour one option over the other. It's a really strange thing that we don't quite understand yet, and the way that it's always been modeled is that it messes with the neural circuitry in the brain. But by showing that the slime mold does something very similar, really kind of throws that theory out the window, because the slime mold doesn't have any neurons. It's difficult to argue then that it's basically uh, messing with the neural architecture. So what it really shows is that there could be something, some very fundamental similarities between a whole range of decision-making systems Uh, across all of the tree of life and using very different fundamental architecture in their organisation.
0: So there could be something in the mathematics of decision making that leads to this sort of irrational behaviour.
2: Yes, certainly in the mathematics or any kind of fundamental shared similarity between systems or maybe just the fact that you have to make a decision means that you could be open to these irrational behaviours.
0: Slime mould reproduction, it's a single cell. So I wouldn't expect it as a single cell to be gendered. How do they reproduce?
2: So the the stage of the life cycle of the slime mould that we work with is the growth stage. So at this stage of the slime mold's life cycle, it's basically aiming to ingest as much food as it can and grow in size as much as it can. Eventually, the slime mould in the natural world will... Uh, come across an area of the environment that's dry, or it will exhaust its entire food supply, and then it has to really get out of that area. And because it can't move very fast, the way that it's evolved to do that is through dispersal via spores. So once the slime mold runs out of food, it actually migrates toward the light, and then releases uh, a whole bunch of spores that can float off in the wind or be carried by animals. Some of those spores will end up in a very uh, favourable environment and hatch. And the little cells that come out of those spores, they will actually have their own little life cycle. They're able to move around by themselves and engulf their own prey. But they've actually got half the amount of genetic material that the growth stage had. And so when two of these little spore cells meet up and fuse, that restores all the genetic material back to the slime mould. It's similar to a sperm fertilising an egg. And then the slime mold is able to continue its life cycle, grow again in this, the stage that, that we use a slime mold, and continue on in that fashion.
0: So the two slime molds that need to get together to have a complete genetic complement, are they different to each other? Or are they, in some sense, the same type of
2: slime mold? They'll definitely be the same species. However, the slime mould does have uh, a few different, not so much genders, what we call them fuse types. So they're based on molecules that are presented on the surface of the slime mould. And if those molecules match with the molecules of a neighbouring slime mould, then they're able to fuse together quite happily. But there are also fuse types that will reject each other. And in fact, there's one paper uh, which showed that some types of slime mould within the same species uh, will actually will seek each other out looking to fuse together. Some will avoid each other uh, completely and others will seek each other out but one of them will actually want to eat the other one. So it's a very complex system happening there. There's definitely several hundred different kinds of fuse types and so uh, many different ways the slime molds can get together and it just speaks um, and continues this theme of a very complex and alien life cycle.
0: Certainly if we want to see the slime moulds moving around. We need time-lapse because they move so slowly. But you showed me under a microscope that on the inside, there's a lot happening very quickly.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating to to look at a slime mould from the outside and immediately you think, well, that's a bit boring. But as soon as you look under a microscope, you see this huge system of tubes all connected together and a whole lot of liquid within those tubes, which is the, the cell contents, moving at a very fast rate and then slowing down and stopping and then reversing the flow, slowing down and stopping. A huge dynamic system that's all, with each part, uh, influencing each other part. It's actually been shown that the slime mold has uh, the fastest rate of flow within its cell of any known organism. And so it uses this as a way to shuttle nutrients around the cell, but also information about uh, what's happening in the outside world. The magic of, of slime mold is really open to anyone. If you want to go out into your local forest, uh, you'll be able to find slime moulds. If you look hard enough, generally you'll have to look in moist areas and leaf litter, overturn some logs, and hopefully you'll find your own little blob of goo. You might even want to take it home with you. Another way is to culture slime moulds from banana skins. So any banana skins that you find from the supermarket, if you allow them to dry out, cut them into little pieces, and then wet them and place them on some wet paper towel. Eventually, hopefully, you'll find that little tiny uh, blobs of slime mold will come together, crawl off your banana skins onto the paper towel, and you'll have your own slime mold uh, to call your own.
0: And if people want to look for your work online, is there a university webpage they can check out?
2: The best way to, to see more of my work is my personal webpage, which is com. Well, Chris Reid, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian.
0: That was Chris Reed talking about slime moulds. You can find out more at chrisrread.wordpress.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Please check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and write to tell me what sort of supporter rewards you'd like to see. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambaca Valley and 3 MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. There will be videos about slime moulds. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on DiffusionRadio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com c slash DiffusionRadio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
1: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism.